0: Well hi everybody, this is Carly Viña here. This is episode 282 of At Percussion, and we are recording today, it's April 18th, and our release date for this episode will be Thursday, April 29th. Um, with me as usual is Ben Charles. How's it going, Ben?
1: Hey Carly, how are you?
0: Good, good. Ben, I see you've been baking up a storm.
1: Yeah, finally like have time now that the semester's dwindling down, so it's been fun. <laughs>
0: that's awesome that's so I actually wonderful. made
1: another cake yesterday so <laughs> I know
0: that's what I, I just saw it this morning no
1: another one other than that one actually.
0: <laughs> so the the word is if anybody needs a cake you know who to call
1: for the, the entire cake. percussion community yes
2: <laughs> and
0: of course the wonderful Ksenia Komunovic is also here today how's
2: it going Ksenia Hey, Carly, going well. It's a bit cold here in Texas, but got to whip out those sweaters. For those of you who aren't watching, just listening, you're missing out on my favorite sweater.
0: That's, no, that's a lovely sweater. Thank that's you. A, <laughs> that's a little weird. Complimenting. Cold, cold in Texas in mid April.
2: Yeah, times are strange. If they could be any stranger, you know.
0: Hey, tell us a little bit about this festival you were involved with yesterday.
2: Oh, so our uh, buddy Bill Schaltis, a f- friend of the podcast, organized this beautiful percussion ensemble festival and we got to listen to some folks uh, play for us virtually or, or live stream or, you know, pre-recorded. Uh, we had a mix of everything and we got to chat with them. Some insanely, monstrously talented ninth graders in there. I think we all need to like really, really practice a lot to keep up. <laughs> Um, and yeah, we had, um, a couple of presentations Brian Nosny was there and he did a wonderful presentation on composition, uh, for young ones. And I just tried to, I don't know, yap my way through it by talking about 10 things I wish I knew before college. So,
0: Hey, that's nice. That was a perfect topic.
2: Yeah. It was cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lovely. Well, Kseni, I think you also have some news for us today, right?
2: Yeah. I get to tell you what happened on April 29th in music history. So I'll go through the really important stuff first, like in 2007, Rage Against the Machine reunited um, to close the Coachella Festival, which was awesome in their first show in seven years. Love them. They're awesome. They did well in Audio Slave as well, Um, but this was this was great. Um, And then if we go further, in 1985, Freddie Mercury released his solo album, Mr. Bad Guy. So... I guess Billie Eilish had a predecessor. She says, I'm a bad guy, but he was Mr. Bad Guy. And it sells okay in the UK, but in the US it doesn't even make it to the top 150, which I have no idea how that that happened. And the album is super fun. And if you go and at least check out the title track, it's like this really cool thing about, um, I mean, it has like a full orchestra version, you know, behind him playing. So it's, it's amazing. Um, 1968, the musical Hair opened on Broadway. You can start singing Let the Sun Shine In now in the back. And in 1899, Duke Ellington was born in Washington, D.C. Now, the interesting uh, part, I think, here and relevant to this episode was that um, although there's some confusing uh, dates, it's somewhere around April 29th. Um, there was a premiere of, of Philip Glass's chamber opera, Hydrogen Jukebox, um, and it's so Philip Glass's musical work and the work of a beat poet, uh, Allen Ginsberg, if you've heard of him. Now, this is super interesting. I don't know if any of you have heard of this, but if you don't know of Allen Ginsberg, so he's a beat poet best known for his poem Howl, in which he denounced what he saw as the destructive force of capitalism and conformity in the U.S., And so the San Francisco police and the U.S. customs seized his poem, "Howl" in 1956, and it attracted widespread publicity in 1957 when it became the subject of an obscenity trial, as it described heterosexual and homosexual sex at a time when sodomy laws made homosexual acts a crime in every state. The poem reflected Ginsburg's own sexuality and his relationships with a number of men, including uh, Peter Orlovsky, who is his lifelong partner. And so the judge, Clayton W. Horn, ruled that Howell was not obscene. Um, the judge said, would there be any freedom of press or speech if one must reduce his vocabulary to vapid, innocuous euphemisms? But anyway, this, um, this interaction came by the two of them bumping into each other at a bookstore in New York City, the St. Mark's Bookshop, which sadly no longer exists, but uh, Glass said, I bumped into him and I asked him if he would perform with me. We were in the poetry section and he grabbed a book from the shelf and pointed out Wichita Vortex Sutra. The poem, written in 1966 uh, and reflecting the anti war mood of the times, seemed highly appropriate for the occasion. I composed a piano piece to accompany Allen's reading, which took place at the Schubert Theater on Broadway. And I thought, how oh, this is so interesting. We don't often hear poetry read to music and there is a term for this it's called melodrama Um, but we just don't talk about it uh, as much just as a you know as a form as as what what is its function in fact i did this all of last summer throughout the covid you know craze i would find these minimalist composers and i would write uh, i write poetry so i just read it out because i thought wow there's something really beautiful about the way that you get to time and pace the reading to to some beautiful music Well, obviously, I was not very innovative. I mean, they did this 50 years ago. And then, I mean, obviously, this happens in opera a lot. So I really wasn't innovative. Anyway, the two of them loved it so much that they soon started talking about expanding this into a bigger work. And um, it was right after the 1988 presidential election when neither Bush nor Dukakis seemed to talk about anything of what was going on. And so Glass said, and I remember saying to Alan, if these guys aren't going to talk about it, then we're going to. So out came this fabulous chamber opera. There are only excerpts available on YouTube if you want to watch it, um, but certainly worth the investigation. Basically, it is a portrait of America between the 1950s and 1980s reflecting on social issues. So anti-war movement, sexual revolution, drugs, Eastern philosophy, environmental issues, all of that stuff. It's called Hydrogen Jukebox. Check it out.
0: Well, that's awesome. Thanks, Ksenia. You know, I, I think you just opened up a whole can of worms because I think now we want to hear your poetry over minimalism. Jennifer says yes. Now, <laughs> when is it coming? Wasn't it?
2: Right, I I gotta I got If you're not watching, I'm just following <laughs> my my turtleneck turtle shell. Um, I'm blushing. I thank you so much. I really feel like this would decrease the quality of your life, so probably should not do that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you have masochistic tendencies, then just drop me a DM. I'll happily send you some. <laughs> but thanks for the kind, uh, kind question, Jennifer.
0: Well, it's it's spot on, because I imagine we're going to be talking about some, you know, collaborations of percussion and voice and all kinds of avant garde new musicy things later on. Um, In case you haven't already figured it out, our our guests today are wonderful members of the Percussive Arts Society New Music Research Committee. Um, And I'll tell you, here is the charge of the New Music Research Committee. The New Music Research Committee oversees an annually themed series of PASIC events focused on experimental and avant garde music for percussion. Through performance and research, the new Music Research Committee highlights the works, ideas, and traditions that shape our contemporary art form, which is a beautiful statement so i'm very happy to welcome um, joey van hassel who's the committee chair is here with us today sean hamilton is here aaron butler is here jennifer Torrance is back on the podcast and so is lee hinkle thank you all so much for joining us today i'd love to have you all we'll just go around i'll I'll shoot it to you and you tell us a little bit about where you're at what you've been up to um you know and, and your involvement in the committee as well joey why don't you start off
3: Sure, Um, yeah, I'm Joey Van Hassel. I've been chairing the committee. Let's see, I was interim chair for a year. So this is my first year as the actual chair. Um, And I currently live in North Carolina, Southeast North Carolina and teach percussion amongst other things at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke.
0: Awesome, thanks Joey, welcome. Um, Sean, let's hear from you next.
4: Hey, it's good to be here, I'm Sean Hamilton. I'm based in Western Colorado right now uh during more normal times I tour as much as possible teach a little bit and uh do sound for production company so my first year on the committee I think I'm coming up on one year right now so
0: awesome awesome well welcome and Aaron
4: hi
5: I'm Aaron uh I'm currently based in Seattle Washington um out here I'm wrapping up the second year of my doctorate and just uh making lots of field recordings during the pandemic yeah
0: (laughs) what kind of field recordings
5: uh I've been taking ferry rides lately I never got to do any Seattle stuff out here I was like in my first year didn't get to explore was like overloading myself with courses and then the pandemic hit and I've just like just recently been like I'm gonna go take ferry rides and like make make little video field recordings and like around the Puget Sound and stuff so
0: Nice, that sounds beautiful. You know, when you said fairy rides, I was thinking F A I R Y at first. Like, wow, fairy field recordings. All right. <laughs> that sounds very nice. Uh, we also have
6: Jennifer Torrance joining us. Yeah, hi. Nice to be back. Um, I am based in Oslo, Norway, where I teach percussion at the Norwegian Academy of Music. And I also am doing what's called artistic research. And what am I up to right now? I have my first concert of the year for live audience in two weeks. So I'm preparing for that and it's on um, a bunch of tiles. So actually my desk is just these microtunnel tiles. Um, Wow. It was very, as we can all relate, extremely exciting. (laughs) What actually happened. Awesome. Well, I, I for sure want to hear more about that
0: a little later. Thanks, Jennifer. And of course, last but not least, Lee Hinkle is here joining us as well.
7: Hello everyone, thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be back. Um, I am here at the University of Maryland College Park. Um, Our campus is located right outside of Washington DC within the Beltway Um, and I'm on faculty here. I've been here since 2009. Um, I'm actually transitioning to a position at Penn State um, next August and so I'm working, my main projects that I'm doing right now is working on moving um, and selling my house here and Um, Hopefully, purchasing a a place in State College and um, doing some recruiting for Penn State and gearing up for a new job, which I'm sure, as all of you know, is a lot of work. Um, And so I'm excited about those prospects. Um, From a musical perspective, I've been working um, towards some recordings, um, some projects that I'm working on, a piece by Stuart Saunders-Smith for Vibraphone and Voice, and then I'm also working on a chamber piece by Tom DeLeo um, called Klingend Two for piano and multiple percussion. And I'm planning to record that next fall. So those are my two musical projects right now. And I just had my first in-person music performance since last October. Over last, not last, I guess, two weeks ago, Easter Sunday, I got to play some timpani with a brass quintet and organ and some singers, and it just felt so great to be back in the saddle. Doing some in-person music making and it was very therapeutic and um so i'm glad to hear about jennifer's performance as well and i hope we can all get back to some in-person music making soon
0: yeah that's awesome what an incredible feeling just kind of like wow you can hear me and respond as we're and i can hear you we're playing together and there's an audience and they're experiencing it at the same time like the things we took for granted a year ago over a year ago well that's awesome lee we are so excited for you and your new position um you have a lot on your plate right now so to to get into a little bit more about the new music research committee joey why don't you start us off and tell us kind of an overview of the committee's activities
3: sure the the kind of the main thing the committee does is it used to be called focus day but they've changed it to and lee you can correct me if i'm wrong uh it's new music research day correct
7: i think the the official branding title now is new music research presents uh, and then it's the special topic thing right after that. Okay. <laughs> I, I, it takes me forever to remember that too. I still call it <laughs> focus day and it is I not focus day.
0: People do, but then it's multiple days. It's spread out, right?
3: Right. Um, well, it, it used to be there was, um, so PASIC runs from a Wednesday evening through Saturday evening typically. And it used to be, we had a Wednesday night concert plus um concerts and um, panel discussions spread out through the next Thursday. But now it's it's morphed into just Thursday and it can take a variety of forms based on who's hosting and what they would like to do. Um, so for the new music research presents blank, um, typically one or two, or it's been up, I've seen it up to four or five committee members um, get together choose a topic, the committee t- discusses, votes on it. Um, and then once the topic's approved, start soliciting applications for pieces on that topic cre- and curating um, a concert. And that's, or uh, several concerts usually. And that's kind of been the main thing that the new music research committee has been doing for the past, I think since the 1980s
0: wow yeah so how how far in advance does this process start like when will you start planning say for PASIC 2022
3: um we are already well into the planning for that and actually jen is involved with that i don't know if she wants to say anything sorry to put you on the spot
6: no no i'm a part of a group that's that's uh abby fisher eric Ritterer, and myself and I don't know if it's right to say anything yet, uh, because I guess officially it'll be announced at PASIC this year, but we are shaping a day that will address the global efforts to have a more diverse community uh, of pr- performers and composers and practices. So that's what we're trying to do for 2022. And we'll just leave it like that. Awesome. Well. I look forward to that
3: so yeah it's usually a year or so in advance or even longer sometimes i've been on the committee since i think 2014 now um sometimes there's been two or three in the queue just backed up just because people will come in with different ideas we discuss we all get excited about it um so currently for 2021 lee and bonnie whiting who's also on the committee are I think they're they're pretty much done because we had because of the pandemic we had two years to put it together, which was a unique situation. Um, So I don't know if if Lee you have anything you'd like to say about the the upcoming New Music Research
7: Day.
0: Yes, please, Lee. Tell us a little bit about that.
7: Oh yeah, it would be my pleasure. I'm so excited to represent both Bonnie and I um, on the work that we've been doing. Gosh, for a really long time now. Joey, how long is it exactly that the process been that we've been working on this? Because I can't remember.
3: You know, it's been so long. I'm not sure. It's (laughs) maybe three years. Yeah. You guys had it all put together and then the pandemic and had to shuffle things around and.
7: Yeah. So the process usually is uh, for when we develop these ideas and, and Jennifer and her team is in the process of working on it, you know, putting together a proposal as well. And we, we, we put together these proposals and then we, we, we put them before our committee and then we, we vote on it basically. And um, so, gosh, it was probably about three years ago that Bonnie and I were sitting in a new music research committee meeting together. And we just kind of looked at each other and we said, you know, we're interested in a lot of the same things. We're both interested in theatrical percussion, we're both interested in music for voice and percussion, and it just was a natural fit for us to team up um, and and do something together. So we sat down over coffee and over a couple of lunches, and um, we started formulating a plan for a new Music Research Presents day um, called Music for Voice and Percussion. Um, and my background in music is as a percussionist, but also as a singer. Um, I've studied both for my entire career and I still sing professionally um, as part of my my job here in Washington, DC. Um, and so it only made sense that we would work on this project together. And um, so we put together our proposal. It was released at uh, a PASIC event and, and then um, we solicited, we had hundreds and hundreds of proposals that came in. Um, and we then we had the terrible, terrible task of having to select from all of those incredible applications that we got from so many unbelievably talented people from literally all over the world. Um, and it was just a wonderful experience to take a look at what everybody in the percussion community was doing. And it was so hard. It was so hard to try and feature as many Uh, amazing performers, both emerging performers and established performers, to really get a cross section of this incredible collection of music within the genre of music for percussion and voice. And we didn't limit it just to pieces that say the percussionist is the vocalist. We, We opened it up to anything having to do with percussion and voice it could be that the voice was pre-recorded it could be that language was the inspiration for the composition it didn't necessarily have to have a vocal element to it and we've got this incredible cross-section of music from that genre and we went about the process of figuring out a series of five concerts and a panel discussion Um, right as we were finalizing all of our things in 2020 the covid pandemic hit and um, everything, all the work that we've been doing up to that point was sort of put on pause. Um, And then, you know, in the months, the months after that, and then over the summer, we had multiple conversations with um, PAS administration, um, who were very supportive and very communicative in letting us know that um, there probably wasn't going to be an in-person event that they'd be able to do. So in lieu of that, um, for this past PASIC 2020, we were able to feature a a selection of artists um, that applied for us for a virtual performance. And so we had an hour long concert um, that was really wonderful with a great collection of of pieces and wide diversity in terms of composers and performers of pieces for voice and percussion. And then um, because of the pandemic and the fact that we weren't able to do our full event of five concerts and a panel discussion, Um, We're planning to do the full event this coming November in Persic in Indianapolis, five full concerts of incredible music and a panel discussion. And we've got an incredible collection of emerging artists um, as well as established artists. Um, We've got Steve Schick, who will be playing a piece. We've got um, Alan Audie who's going to be doing a project as well. Um, We've got a really, really wonderful thing planned. And so I hope that everybody will be able to attend in person, fingers crossed, this coming Mm -hmm. November for New Music Research Presents Music for Voice and Percussion.
0: Yeah, awesome. Hey, for, for me personally, if there's any topic that's gonna get two years as being part of PASIC, voice and percussion is a great one. So let's all let's all cross our fingers. Thanks, Lee. It's so great to hear more more about that. I really, really look forward to that. I actually didn't know that Steve Schick and Alan Adi would be performing, but that is awesome. It's gonna be so wonderful. You know, and since, since we have all of you uh, wonderful contemporary percussionists on um, for our panel today, I'm wondering. Um, I, I have this kind of big pie in the sky kind of question. I'm wondering how how do you approach forming a value judgment on a new piece of music? What kinds of things are you looking for? How do you decide what music you're gonna play? What is good? What you know? What resonates with your voice? What you can do something with? Um, are there kind of certain aesthetic characteristics that you look for, or or, or maybe other kinds of Thoughts or inspiration, and we haven't heard too much from Aaron yet, so I'm wondering if you want to start with this one.
5: Just jump sh- jump straight into the deep end. On yeah, this question, I'm just drawing you, um, you, into the deep end. Uh, this is it, That's a huge question, and it's 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 actually something I think that I have been thinking about a lot in the last like three years or so. Is like even like how do I make these value judgments for for myself and like what I what I um prioritize but I think if I think for me like it's actually kind of simple um I think things that I just go like what is that (laughs) or like wait you can do that or like you know thing pieces and things and ideas and concepts that just like shock me at like you can just do that thing or or this sound, you know, like this idea to create a sound that I've never thought of or never heard or whatever is like, as soon as something like that happens, I get obsessed and I just like, yeah, I'll just like spend, you know, however long tinkering with these ideas or learning a piece. But, but I think that's like the initial impulse for me is just like, what?
0: Like, <laughs> yeah. Wait, what is that? Yeah, yeah, cool. Totally. Can you can you think of um what's what's a recent sound or or piece or anything that you've been like wow?
5: Um, well, I'm actually working on a. It's this is brand new, and I haven't even I haven't even tested any of this myself. But uh, Elizabeth A. Baker has written me a new vibe piece for vibraphone, electronics, field recordings. All of this is pretty, um, you know, within my wheelhouse but the element that is she she like painted these canvases and has amplified them so to process the vibraphone um i am setting up art pieces that she's created and the surface of the painting becomes the transducer for the microphone to feed the sound of the vibraphone into a computer rig and then I actually play the canvas sometimes but with my hands scraping speaking or singing into it and then there's another canvas that the the score is uh, projected onto so the score becomes a visual element as well and so that kind of blew my mind I uh, you know I was just like write me a vibe piece maybe with some field recordings and then she did this <laughs> whole thing and I was like what yeah so But i'm just literally she just sent me this huge box it's like i got this it was like getting you know like a gallery shipment to my front door um so yeah
0: that's incredible i think i have this the same reaction like whoa like that that's a thing we can do that that's cool i look forward to hearing hearing more about that as you dig into that project
1: i was going to add to that uh that like what you can do that sort of discussion I, i think that's like it's like that that X factor, like that that gets me as well. And like the non musical example I can think of is the Pixar film Wall-E, and it's a film about a sentient trash compactor, and there's no dialogue for like the first forty five minutes. Like, can you hold people's attention for forty five minutes with no dialogue about something that doesn't actually exist? Uh, but for me, the the piece that comes to mind is I remember I was a freshman in college, and it was actually at, at Focus day. Uh, Christopher Dean had a new piece premiered, and it was a thirty-minute-long solo for thunder sheet and spoken voice. And I was like, you know, like for just a thunder sheet solo in general it sounds ridiculous, and then to have it thirty minutes long, also, it's just like, what? You can't do that. That's not possible. And then, like, when I finally heard the piece piece years later, I was like, oh my god, this this is amazing, and I, I have to do this. So that was my my moment for that, my Wally moment. <laughs>
0: Your thunder sheet moment, yeah, you know that that piece is incredible too. And I think I, I think I didn't know about that piece, um, Ben, until you performed it. I assume we're talking about a robe of orange flames.
1: Yes, yes, I probably should have said the title. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember you did that on one of your DMA recitals, and you're telling me about it, and it's like that sounds crazy. And it, like at the time, what I was probably working on songs one through nine maybe that was dresser year I don't remember but like I was into some weird stuff but honestly Ben I was like I don't know about this thunder sheet
1: the weird thing also is that Svet never wanted to hear it until a week before the recital like he he literally did not hear half of my recital until a few days before
0: that surprises me <laughs>
1: I'm glad he trusted me with that one
0: Well, Sean, I wonder, do you have any thoughts on this? What are you you looking for when you look for new repertoire?
4: I really think my favorite stuff is music that uh, gives an experience. I feel like maybe is the best way to sum it up. So sometimes it's longer pieces. Sometimes it's shorter pieces, you know, but um, anything that kind of, when I get to the end, I'm like, whoa, that really took me somewhere. Could come from sound. It could come from the structure of the piece. You know um hearing about the piece for thunder sheet it's like yeah that just sounds crazy and i'm into it already haven't even heard the piece you know so i'm not familiar with that piece but um either way a lot of times stuff like that it's kind of like wow that sounds really over the top or that sounds like extreme or whatever i really like that stuff because those are the pieces for me that i come away from going like wow that really took me somewhere um I do a lot of work that's improvised and I end up playing a lot like with noise artists and stuff. And the average noise set is 15 minutes long. Um, And those sets for me always have that uh, experience factor where it's like loud, intense and 15 minutes. So it's short, relatively speaking, but uh, still when I walk away from that, it's like, wow, that's crazy. You know, and it really took me somewhere. So for me, that's really what I appreciate is when a piece takes me somewhere. Another piece that comes to mind for me is uh, Toxin, the Nielsen piece, which was played a few years ago at PASIC, I think. And uh, I listened to the whole piece and the whole time I'm thinking, like, what's going on? You know, what's happening? This is interesting. And then at the very end, I felt like the whole piece was contextualized. Uh, So that piece, I felt like I walked away from with an experience. And for me, I really enjoy that aspect of it.
0: Yeah, cool. I love that you're saying, you, you keep saying, like, it takes me somewhere, there's a journey. And I think about something my mom used to say when I was a, a kid, we would talk about, you know, not just music, but like movies or a play or TV or, or anything, she'd say, like, I want to feel different after like I'm changed after I experience it. And that's something that that resonates with me when I'm thinking a lot about music and any art that I'm consuming. But I agree. Awesome. Sean. Thanks. Xenia, I think you have something.
2: Yeah, so my question for all of you um, is, where do you think does the marriage of conceptual art so performance artists and Percussionists happen. And what comes to mind or who comes to mind is Marina Abramovich, who is a very well known uh, conceptual artist and performance artist and I love her work and just reading her uh, autobiography to see what that woman has done in her life and how she has constantly walked in the direction of her fear, I think is amazing. Um, But have you ever explored the idea of collaborating with performance artists or learning from them i mean just we in general as percussionists should do that i feel because we we lean into what they do so much but i feel like we don't really get to hang out with them a lot or maybe that's just me in south of texas so does anyone have any thoughts on performance art and how that interplays with what we're doing
6: i do think about this relationship quite a bit um and performance art is difficult to define, but often it's a situation that can't be reproduced. It, it happens, Abramovich walks across the China wall and meets her now ex-lover. You can't reproduce this situation. And most of what we new music percussionists do is reproducible. Um, so there's always this gap. And it also that performance art is something that has a kind of transformational quality it can have this that the the performer is the material, and their change that's happening on stage is being witnessed by, by an audience. And in the case of Abramovich, she's actually, attempting them to get involved. So there's there's this blur that's also interesting. That I, I don't know many percussion works that challenge this blurring, where actually calling, the audience in almost to intervene sometimes. So it's. It's more extreme in some ways, but I think at the core is that I think we do a lot of things that can be reproduced, even if it's improvised. That speaking from my own improvised practice, there's still a history of my sounds that I tend to do. And then when I improvise again, they're still there. Uh, I'll just say that it's like that. I didn't answer the question at all, but that there's a, a real difference that's
2: uh that's interesting and i think you i mean you're very right but now when i think about uh one of my last uh museum experiences was when i was in belgrade a, a year and a half ago and there was a retrospective of, of her work and she was there for the opening but then you know left obviously and there were a lot of performance artists just there recreating her work so i think that's something that. She and other performance artists have been talking about how, you know, while it's beautiful that this is a singular sort of exclusive experience that they're trying to get people involved. Of course, the point is for you to express yourself and for you to create an experience that's unique to you, but you could also do something else. So there were, you know, like naked people standing in doorways where you couldn't enter a room and see a part of the exhibit unless you walked in between them. And, you know, wearing the gowns or screaming at each other or holding. The bow and you know the arrow and so on. So I think uh, I think that's that's really interesting. But anyway,
5: yeah, I, th- I think this thing about the audience engagement is interesting, and 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 a part of music that I'm I'm like really interested in in like inviting the audience in. This is like we're taking a tangent, I guess, but but I think that's like one of these. Uh, it's becoming a little more common, I think, of like Sarah Henney's vibraphone solo that just needs like any number of thrift store bell ringers and it can literally be anybody or or even things that like engage audiences in different ways where like i'm really like these days like i'm like i don't want people confined to chairs and even if their engagement is that if you stand in this corner of the room the beating tones that i'm producing by just playing a bunch of clusters on a vibraphone are different than if you stand in that corner and I want you to like traverse that area and and kind of do that. So I just, like that just triggered something in me that like was like, oh, but yeah. But I do think there is like, uh, we get lumped into this like, oh, it's like performance art more than music. And and I get that kind of thing, that kind of like impulse to do that. But But yeah, like, I think I'm also just like, oh no, this is just music.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I kind of echoing what Aaron says, like, I, I actually did a class for Carly students at FIU about a week ago. And like I, I, in that specifically, I was talking about like sound art or noise art, whatever, versus music, but it's very like, particular to try and draw a line in the sand on this is that, and that, whatever. Uh, and I always come back to like the, the Steve Schick book, he talks about like, what instrument did B.B. King play? And everyone says guitar, no, he played Lucille, that was B.B. King's guitar. What instrument does Steve Schick play or any of us play like, well, percussion, like generally broadly, we don't, we don't play a violin or a guitar. And so by the very nature of our own instrument, like we, we don't play an instrument, we play an idea, so to speak. And then at that point, like a lot of pieces that we play are for like gestures with an audio track or something like that. And like, at what point, like, do we draw the line and say like, okay, well, the Keiko Ibu marimba solo is definitely music, but the Steve Reich, you know, repetitive patterns, that's like sound art that's not music and it's like it, no like and so to me like at a certain point like i guess some people like to draw the line in the sand but i'm i'm just not so curious about like what that is and it's like the kind of like the the mark Applebaum sort of like mischievous person like hey we don't do experiments because we know they're going to work like we do experiments to find out what's going to happen and so if you're playing a piece because you know it works or you know the end result that's that actually doesn't seem very creative to me it's like the the asking the what if which is very Alan Hoddy thing, I think so. Yeah, I don't know. That's my two cents. I think Jennifer had something.
6: I did. (laughs) Uh, I was just going to say that when I when I talk about it myself, because things I do are often described as performance art, I try to say that I, I do work that approaches performance art. I don't claim to do performance art because of all these differences, differences that I see. And also this idea that performance art is really happening. Yes, I'm really playing a snare drum, but it's a different kind of construction also. Um and it, there's also something about the presence that I think we can relate to that much of the old works of Cage and other Fluxus artists. I just uh, recorded a piece by Mieko Shiomi who is or is a Japanese Fluxus artist where it's just two performers staring into each other's eyes and this is basically just a production of presence which Is happening in front of an audience, but it's very private. Uh, So then I I can see, I feel that all performers are working on this, producing our own presence, a real, concrete presence, while we are also doing constructed things like playing scores that already exist. But I totally agree with you, Ben. It's like it's a big mess, and trying to draw clear lines is just not going to work. You know, more and more, I'm starting to feel like our bodies are an instrument in
0: every way, like our sticks and mallets are an extension of the, the physicality that we use and create to play. And Ben, I guess what made me think of it was you saying like, well, we play everything and sometimes we play nothing but gestures in the air. And what does that even mean? Um, I'm loving this discussion. Thank you all so much. Joey, I think you have something.
3: Yeah, just real quick. This made me think of um, We've mentioned Alan Audie a few times, and he's a, a mentor of mine. And he gave what I think to be the best definition of what music is. This is from an interview that I have on VHS tape from the 1980s. <laughs> um, but he said, "Whatever musicians are doing, that's what music is."
5: Yeah, I think I think just to maybe even like take what Jen was saying and and Ben even it's like I think. People maybe look at some of the things that us type of percussionists do as being totally different. but I, I, yeah, I think about like everything that goes into, like I just recorded a piece for two cardboard boxes. Um, and you know, every like the concerns that I have for producing sounds on an amplified cardboard box and my presence, at the instrument is like it's the same concerns I have if I'm playing a Bach cello suite. Like I, it's it's not different to me,
1: you know. Um, yeah. Have Have you guys seen that that uh, video clip of John Cage appearing on the the game show I've Got a Secret? It's there, there's this great moment. It's like a late night television program, and the the host of the show just says, "We're gonna scrap what we're supposed to do tonight. I just want you to see what this guy is doing." And so he does a little mini interview with John Cage before John Cage Plays Water Walk. And he says, Mr. Cage, do you consider what you do to be music in the same vein as Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, and all the greats before you? And John Cage says, yes, I do. And then the host says, okay, well, what you do is so strange, so peculiar, people might laugh at it. Does it bother you when people laugh at your music? And Cage says, I'd rather have them laugh than cry, which I think is like perfect. It's like, yeah, I'm playing two cardboard boxes. Like, so what?
0: (laughs) laughter is definitely preferable to tears um well i wonder i wonder if we can talk a little bit more about maybe compositional directions or trends that you all see things going in or what what directions are you excited about
6: um any any takers on that actually i'm not gonna i i want to go back to your first question about perfect what was it how do we decide if something is good yeah yeah I've been thinking quite a bit around the word curation and the root cura in Latin meaning care and this idea of curation as care. And then I can jump to the question now that I start to see around me and us, our community that I believe people are curating what they care about uh, more than I remember. I, I feel really hopeful that And it's cares that go beyond their own uh, virtuosity or their own image. Um, So I would say, more than direction specifically, I, I, I feel excited about this shift as a community. Yeah, meaning beyond, I think you're
0: meaning even beyond like, I like this music and I want to play it, but thinking about, you know, kind of responsibility to our community and, you know, whether it's environment or human rights or any of these really important issues. Kind of e- ethical music making, yeah, I agree with you, absolutely. I think there's a lot going in that direction, and you know the our consciousness as musicians as a whole is certainly shifting in that way.
7: I just wanted to add to that i I'm just in terms of where you know where music composition is going um to sort of like piggyback off what Jennifer was saying, I'm just so impressed by. The number of performers on every instrument, not just percussion, that are so brave um, to play these pieces that are so politically charged or that are um, vulnerable. Um, you know, Aaron was mentioning the piece by Sarah Hennies, the vibraphone solo. That's an incredibly vulnerable piece, um, and she plays it so bravely. Um, you know, here I am. And this is me. And this is this is what I want to say with this piece. And so I, I see a lot of these these brave performances, I see a lot of brave compositions that are not shying away from difficult issues. Um, and I'm just so impressed, because it's, I keep pointing back to this word brave, because I think it's just there's a lot of folks who are just have a lot of courage in their performances. And I I think that's incredible. And I also think that have the absence of live performance that we've all experienced for quite some time has led us all to um, embrace it and remember how important it was to us. I mean, anytime you take away time away from something um, and then that longing that, that comes with um, the relationship that you have with music, which is one of the main loves of your life, when you're away from that and you, you develop that longing for that thing, um, when you come back to it, You come back with this renewed energy and care to use the word that jennifer was saying of curation um and so i'm seeing for me i'm seeing a lot of that and i'm i'm seeing that when we do come back to live performance um there will be these brave performances and they will be in person and they will be very powerful for audiences because of that absence that we've all experienced
0: yeah beautiful you know it it makes what both of you are saying makes me think of um, the Innocence Project, this project that John Lane and Alan Auti have been doing together. And um, John Lane, we've had him on the show in the past and he did a, a class for my students at FIU earlier this year. And he talked about, you know, they were going through this process. It's, it's basically they've created a musical performance to highlight the, the experiences of people that have been wrongfully imprisoned. Um, and they had this conversation saying like, well, is there something else we should be doing? Like, is there another way we can advocate for these people rather than, um, you know, like just we're doing this hour long percussion show or whatever, you know, is entertainment. Um, and ultimately like what he said was every time they've Come around to that like the people the family members and the people that are affected by this wrongful imprisonment say no keep telling the story in your way in an authentic artistic way um and i i just thought that was really interesting
7: i'll just piggyback off what carly was saying because the the innocence is the name of their project right so that's the name of i guess the piece for this innocence project that john lane and alan audi are doing and you'll have an opportunity to see that um at PASIC 2021 um as part of the um, the event that uh, Bonnie Whiting and I have put together—they're um, going to do an excerpt from it. We couldn't feature their full-length program because it's a—it's a comprehensive thing that they do. But we're hoping to have at least fifteen minutes of that, the innocence, um, on PASIC 2021.
0: That's so great! As if we needed more reasons to be excited for PASIC 2021. <laughs> we're going to—you know—you know that PASIC fatigue you usually feel by like Friday afternoon. Um, I don't know if we're gonna get that this year. I think like Saturday night's gonna come and we're gonna be like, can we do another week? This is so great. get to hear people. Can we all just go
1: in the exhibit hall and play really loud on whatever instrument for a while <laughs> longer? <laughs> Your mega death drum licks, yeah.
5: <laughs> another difficult question of like trends. And I think the what I what I perceive is kind of a lack of a trend. Or a singular thing. I think there's so many branches happening right now of what I would consider new music that that yeah, I think it I think exactly what Lee and Jen were saying. Every it's like people are people seem to be making much more personal decisions about these things and like the the ways they're taking the art instead of like I have to play this piece because I'm at this level in my career, and I'm supposed to play this piece, or I have to write this piece because I'm at this level of my career and I'm supposed to write a piece like this, you know? And it, it seems like that's, if it's like a non-trend trend, I think of everybody's just <laughs> being, if, if it, it, there's a lot more uh, honesty in the works I see coming out than, than maybe I perceived when I was younger
0: yeah yeah sometimes i I think about that and i think well is that what it's always been like that there's a lot of trends in different directions and the ones that survive and that we hear about are you know bach and then mozart and then beethoven but yeah it it certainly seems that way now i like that that thought process
3: yeah I, i was just gonna say i agree with aaron very much this idea of not necessarily wishing to play what our so-called standard pieces are Um, and that's something i've been thinking about a lot lately is the the definition of standard repertoire why it's standard who is making these calls so i also something that i've been trying to do in my own playing research whatever you have um, is also looking back and seeing again why were these Why is this piece, for whatever reason, played by everybody or seen as the standard piece that you have to play on your master's recital or whatever? What about the hundreds of other pieces that were being written by perhaps less well-known folks um, that just weren't maybe promoted in the right way or they were promoted in a different way or something like that? Um, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but that's, I guess, as far as a future for percussion, I would i like the idea of also looking back and seeing what what else is there that we haven't played that's you know worth looking at
5: i was just, i was just gonna say joey is the master of finding obscure old pieces that nobody has ever heard of and they're incredible like i, I like th- there's a number of pieces in my repertoire that are like uh directly because he's he, he just does that digging and like what we've done premiered, like what what was the, we premiered that piece a few years ago, but it was like written in the eighties and it like just nobody ever played it. That drum set duo. Uh,
3: oh, the the derry John Wiesel piece.
5: Yeah, it was like, it was so old and it, you were just like, this piece has never been premiered, we should play it. <laughs> like,
3: and I guess talking piece. about value judgments then that's, I, I have a very short attention span to a fault, I think to a definite fault. <laughs> um but what excites me about music is looking looking at a piece and just thinking well what does this sound like someone should play this and be like oh i guess i could play it um or someone there should be a vibraphone solo by peter garland why doesn't he have a vibraphone solo so maybe i'll ask peter garland and see what he says and i or i don't know there's somebody should write a piece like this here's the idea for the piece well, i guess maybe i should write it since it was all i don't know again just the sense of exploration, experimentation, just being, like I said, I, my attention span is so low that I get excited about practically anything and then go from there.
6: Yeah, I was just going to say it's incredibly important work. And I, I also feel if we go back to this shift that has happened over the last year, I also notice that people are digging up pieces that were there. And one piece that comes to mind that is really surprising is, is is Julia Perry's Homunculus, if I'm saying it, the word right, which is for 12 percussionists and harp, or 11 percussionists and harpists. And then all the renditions of Ionization, you went to all that effort to get all those players on the stage, just do the Julia Perry as well, or instead. But for reasons I think that we, we can say bluntly, which are sexism and racism, this piece is almost forgotten. So this work is, is just so important. And then I was going to add that uh, there's a percussionist in Oslo named Inervik. Okay, uh, He's a wonderful teacher and, and musician. He had a project called Radical Interpretations of Iconic Works. And he's he played Safa and he played the King of Denmark, but it's actually about how far can you go when it's still the piece whatever that means. And his students now are doing amazingly odd things in that in that situation. So one example is one student who is is going to be somebody is playing rebombi with instead of um, instead of a bongo. I think it's instead of bongos. He's playing a guitar. So he's doing these kinds of things and really questioning what what is this material doing? And if I move it slightly into another sound world, what can happen? And I think this kind of work is also incredibly important to keep these works alive. So not only that we don't have standardized works, but also standardized interpretations, It's also scary. Wow,
2: that is is—that's a lot to think about. I'm loving this conversation. It's amazing. Um, uh, I wanted to bring up the topic of entertainment. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about and listening to uh, far too many David Foster Wallace interviews and reading too much of his work. Um, There is um, definitely a connection right between entertainment and the Western capitalist consumer comfort focused culture. And on the other side, there's the demonization of everything that is related to entertainment because of all of that. Um, Now, um, I'd love to know how much does this play a part into what you choose to perform? Is it just that your taste is different and what you find entertaining is maybe not, you know, what has the widest, it's not pop music, it's not stadium film music, whatever all of us do, actually, it's not not you, I'm I'm very much in there. are we are we actually playing by the same rules? We're the same as those big producers, but we just choose what we like, or do we think that entertainment should not be a primary drive driver to how we pick our music, Aaron?
5: Um, I'll just jump in first to say, like I kind of mentioned this like idea that like I don't approach something classic. Any differently than I approach playing cardboard boxes, and I also, you know, I play in garage rock bands, and I started my musical career playing guitar and heavy metal and punk bands, and um, and yeah, I, I think for me, I I don't think entertainment is bad. I don't take that. I want an audience in whatever I present, whether it's playing a rock and roll show in the basement of a bowling alley in Cleveland, Ohio, or playing a focus day piece where I'm just playing a single note. Um, Yeah, I just don't have those, like those, these things just aren't really delineated in my brain, like they're all a part of me, and they all inform the other thing. And I don't think I have that like, reactionary thing to like entertainment, like, like, that can mean a lot. And I, I, I want people to enjoy stuff, you know, I like to be entertained. And sometimes that entertainment is watching a Marvel movie or it's you know listening to somebody roll on a tam tam for forty
7: five minutes i I'd love to bounce off what Aaron just said. um I have a lot of similar emotions, and i don't I don't know Aaron that well yet, but I do know that just in the little bit that I've heard him talk that we share a lot of the same feelings about some of these things and um you know, this kind of goes also back to the question of quality right like what makes a, a new piece of percussion music great versus others and quality the definition of quality is one thing measured against other things of a similar type but then you know, in the world of classical music, I don't think that that measurement of quality or that definition of quality is a good measurement because there are so many interdisciplinary things, like performance artists that also play percussion or all of these, these things that are happening between different types of art forms and things. So we can't use the, the question of quality to measure the quality of something against other things. Um, so when I'm when I'm consuming music or I'm playing music or art or or entertainment of any kind, I just want something that makes me feel something. I think it just for me it's as simple as that. I want something that makes me feel something. I am an unabashed Britney Spears fan. Absolutely. I was just <laughs> listening to Britney yesterday morning while I was making breakfast. Is that um, how I you also... won your
2: job? <laughs> Is that it?
6: That's <laughs> the secret.
7: That's the secret. Yeah, I was yeah I was pumped up on Britney Spears exactly. <laughs> Um, So, you know, I, I, and again, I'm a singer and a percussionist too. So I consume a lot of vocal music. Um, Folk, um, singer songwriter stuff is some of my favorite stuff. My favorite, um, my favorite artist of all time is Stevie Wonder. My second favorite is Roberta Flack. My third favorite is Paul Simon. Um, So singer songwriters are like at the heart of the things that I love about music. And I am not ashamed of that at all. And it's just part of me as a musician. And I think, you know, going back to what Aaron was saying, there's no reason why we can't be polyamorous in our love of music. We don't have to just love new music, we can love all music and love it equally. Like our hearts are big enough to have all of those things within ourselves.
0: You know, the only part of that that I have a bone to pick with you about is that Paul Simon is number three. What's that about? He's not number one. <laughs>
7: No, man, Stevie Wonder,
4: Stevie Wonder all the way. (laughs) I kind of feel like, at least for my approach, I really feel like it's a deeply personal thing. Like I mentioned before, I improvise a lot. That's mainly what I'm doing now. So it's directly related to me and my experience and my taste and my interests and stuff like that. And when I perform, I feel like it's filtered by the listener's own personal experience, interests, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I try not to worry about too much whether I'm entertaining someone or I'm taking them on a spiritual journey. You know, I'm in some ways I'm performing for me, and I'm presenting something to the audience and everyone there, hopefully, an experience. As I mentioned, um, so I I want my performances to be kind of open to interpretation as well, um, and so I hope that every the listener can get what they want out of it, whether it is entertainment, whether it's a place to kind of escape to for a minute or whether they just absolutely hate what I'm doing and say, man, that's just bullshit or whatever, that's fine too. Uh, And they, that's, that's their right. And uh, so in terms of like entertainment and stuff, I try not to worry about it. I guess that's the uh, simple answer.
0: Yeah, well you never can control of course what the audience's reaction is going to be and if we're doing something experimental sure somebody's going to be like what like I paid for this? this this is this is it but even that like that's an experience that's calling back to what you said earlier that's like that's a journey in itself if you're sitting feeling restless or annoyed or or whatever that's part of the experience certainly um, you know, Lee, you were talking about connection earlier. I think we've been like we've been talking about connection as far as value judgments and quality of music throughout. And a lot of what y'all are saying is making me think about why I think I relate so well, and why audience members seem to relate so well to works for theatrical percussion or any kind of movement or speech or or anything. It's like that that we see people perform and use their arms and their bodies in different ways. And there's movement and we all have voices and like we connect so naturally with that. Um, and I think I think that's a powerful thing too. Sometimes I worry, you know, I'll be doing something that I think is really strange like corporel for extended family members that haven't seen anything like that before. And I think like, I don't know, they're gonna be like, why did I fly here to hear your recital? But um, but people connect with it. There's like nobody that leaves a performance of corporel feeling indifferent or like, eh. You know, you, you might be like, what is this? Is this art? Do I like this? What feelings do I have? But it's certainly, people can't help but I think connect in some way with it. It's somebody using their body in a really basic way to, to create
2: sound. I think most people leave their first experience of corporeal thinking, is this love? Is this, is this self-love? Yeah.
0: I don't know. When I first learned that piece, I I thought about, like, am I doing some kind of like subconscious underlying harm to myself by doing this all the time, you know, for months? Um, It's an interesting process.
5: Yeah, I think this is, uh, yeah, um, what am I trying to say? I think going along these lines of like what entertainment is or if we value that as like a part of what we do and kind of what Sean was saying is I think... I think I, I'm so, uh, you know, uh, in my head all the time and I pl- I I'll play these pieces and in the middle of a piece I'm like questioning every decision I've made in my life, like what has led me to do this thing for an hour that I'm doing in front of people, why would they want to watch this, what, why am I even doing this, and I just like question all this stuff like and I'm just like, I'm gonna look up at the end of this hour long thing and the room's gonna be empty. And uh, why would somebody fly to hear you know, me play my body or something? But, um, but I often find that like people will go there with you. And I think there's, so part of this thing of like, um, like the entertainment thing is, and I think what Sean is saying a bit is like trusting yourself and and presenting something that you care about um and and not like i think there were t- points in my academic career especially when i was younger where it was like well you know being told like you can't play that nobody wants to hear that piece like you can't play that or you can't do this and it's kind of like belittling i think to an audience you know that like the audience needs to be this hyper specialized group of people to appreciate something like this and i i just i think that's uh, for lack of a better term, whack.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, to the belittling to the performer, too, especially as you're trying to develop your voice and find what do I have to share with audiences? But certainly, I think the average people, quote, unquote, you know, non, non-contemporary non musicians are, you know, not, like, they're capable of so much more understanding than sometimes we think. We think we're we're up here having these thoughts, but, like, we're all human beings with human experiences that can be expressed and understood. And um, to me, that's that's what it's about.
1: Yeah, I, I just think of like a, eating at a nice restaurant. Like I even if you're not a great cook, or you don't know anything about food, like you can say like this this food is good or bad. And I, I hate when I ask a non-musician friend, like, so what'd you think of that piece or my performance? And they're like, they always prep like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a musician. So like, I, it's like, no, no, I'm asking you, like, what'd you hear? Yeah, I want to hear what you heard, so yeah. I was going to
3: say, Um, like Aaron was saying, with um teachers almost belittling one for their interest in music, I think now that I've had some experience in the education field that's that's the worst thing a teacher can do is tell someone that what they're interested in what their passion is is not something that's viable, not something they should be doing. It's not worth their time or anybody's time. Um, And I work with uh, mostly or actually all undergrads here, um, often from first generation college families, um, low economic areas. Um, So they're off in this particular area as well. Their experience begins and ends with marching band, it's a big marching band area. Um, So if I were to go in and belittle marching band and say, well, that's dumb, that's just, you know, for jocks or whatever it is and it's all about chops i would immediately lose them and i mean if i i think it's just important as an educator that you treat everything seriously that your students doing whether it's a marching snare solo or it's what did we do aaron on your recital imaginary landscape number two withdrawn version or something weird like that which was um I don't know, I just, it's something I've, I feel very strongly about, especially now that I've worked with, um, I've seen, I've been here seven years, which I know isn't too incredibly long, but, um, having some experience now with undergrad students and their various interests, interests, I think taking whatever they do seriously is, is very, very important.
0: Yes. Beautiful. That's, I think that's important for us all to remember, um, you know, that, that, Especially when students come to you and say, "I'm interested in this. This is what I want to do." Yeah, maybe maybe you also need to do you know some rudimental snare drum and you gotta get some timpani chops and like we have standards and skills and things that students you know you want them to have when they graduate. But certainly you know if they're interested, there's value in that.
3: I was gonna say sorry. um, Talking about standard repertoire again. Um, if a student wants to play a piece that you know maybe I don't personally like or I think is not a great piece, again, I'm not I don't want to push my value judgments on the student because again, it's if it's important to them if that that particular piece connects with them, who am I to say, like you shouldn't do that. Um, I think that piece is crappy. You should do this piece by this guy that everybody else has played because it's a so-called important piece that you need to know. I,
0: well, in my experience too, the students are going to do so much better with what they're excited about. You know, um, I mean, we all have students that like they'll work whatever we give them, like they'll they'll do it. But I've I've been rewarded by trusting the, the students sometimes when they bring me something I'm like I don't know this, but great, let's do it next week. Um, I think is, is an important thing. Thanks, Joey. You want to hear about my tiles? Yeah,
6: absolutely. I want to hear about your tiles. Okay. Uh, one way that I choose to play pieces I like I like I'm actually quoting Madison Greenstone who's a clarinetist and that she says that uh, making music is having a conversation and I like to have conversations with composers that are around me and so this year is my 10th year living in Norway and so I'll have a, a looking a retrospective of all the pieces that I've commissioned and this is a new one by a composer named Evan Melon, who they all live in this in this city in Oslo, but it's pretty amazing. I don't know how the sound is going to go through my Zoom thing, <laughs> etc. And then there will be a solo version of this. Uh, but it's a little bit tricky because he wrote the piece for these tiles. So you know, can you get a D sharp, a D quarter sharp, tile in exactly these, this size and shape? I mean, it's it's a little bit tricky here. Uh, but I'm really excited about. It. I think it's what I love about it is that I'm we finally have legato, real legato, and real sustain. It's actually more like playing a string instrument. And I I've actually felt a kind of healing uh, going on that I can actually do real lines without the illusion of it being a line.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm actually fascinated how different each tile sounded.
6: Yeah, I'm just imagining this composer being like one of us at the tile store. right? That's pretty nutty.
0: (laughs) I've been the crazy person like hitting all the flower pots before, as I'm sure y'all have been too, but that's like a whole other level scraping tiles, I think. Cool. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Um, I have one more question for all of you before we wrap. Um, And what I'm wondering is, is there one piece or one composer? that you think our listeners should go and check out um, because it's something that's exciting, that's on your radar. So to give you a, a minute to think about it, co-hosts are included in this too, if you want. Um, I'll explain, I'll, I'll share mine with you. It's no no big surprise, but I love learning more about Mauricio Coggle, um, just his his ideas and the, the commentary on conservatory training and, you know, it, coming back to a, a appreciation of music with all senses. Um, we were talking about this last week a little bit too, but I just love thinking about that. And especially as we're starting to have these like first in-person re- uh, rehearsal and performance bag and first time playing with an audience, like what a powerful thing for everybody to be in the same room at the same time in this exact performance with this exact audience and the performers will never happen again. And and Anyway, that's something that's been on my my mind lately. So if somehow you don't know about Mauricio Kagel yet, check out some of his works and some of his writings. I think he's fascinating. Who
7: else?
1: I'll, I'll, I'll bite next. Awesome. Uh, my my uh, go-to for like when I first introduce people to like experimental music is Frederick Jevsky and uh, his name I actually wrote it out because it's not pronounced the way that you might think. It's like <laughs> Zewski, but it's pronounced Jevski. But uh, he has a piece. I should have written this too. Uh, Le Mouton de Panurge. Pardon my terrible French accent. Uh, but it's uh, it's a really interesting piece where the way it's performed is you play the first note, then the first second note, then first second third, first second third fourth, until you have all. I think it's 65 notes, and then the piece collapses on itself the other way. The score is free on IMSLP. Check it out. Uh, it's a very very interesting piece, and there's some interesting uh, things like if you make a mistake, you're supposed to just keep going and not try and fix your mistake and the piece becomes a canon between the performers. So I get really excited about that one.
7: I just want to jump in real quick off what Ben said that um, Shevsky is something you'll be able to hear at um, PASIC 2021 for the New Music Research Focus Day. Um, His, his, of course, landmark piece To the Earth for Flower Pots. But um, Bonnie and I are super excited that we'll be able to present Alexandros Fragiskatos um, who will be performing to the earth in Greek, um, which is really fascinating application okay. that we got.
1: Hold, hold on right there because I think it was, it might've been the Alan Adi episode or maybe Steve Schick, I don't, but I said, I want to do it in Greek. And they were like, you shouldn't. And I was like, yeah, but I don't speak Greek, but I'm glad to hear that someone's doing it.
7: <laughs> I, I could be wrong, but I think he is Greek. Um, so that would make more sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So I'll go next my my go to composer, you know, um, also a dear friend, but truly so fabulously talented. Um, his name is Jug Markovic and he is now a student of Thierry Dume uh, Thierry de as we call him in America. Um, but uh, a fabulous, fabulous young composer, check him out. You spell his name as jug J u g. That's Markovic if I was to so jug Markovic, that's the person you want to go <laughs> look for.
0: Thanks for ang- anglicizing it for us. <laughs> Joey, what's on your radar these days?
3: I'm, I'm really glad Jen mentioned the Julia Perry piece. Um, for whatever reason, I think it's not in print anymore. Um, so hopefully it it comes back in print. And I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this because I, I hate self-promotion even though I have a business. Um, I have a publishing company, Media Press, um, which I bought from a student of Tom Sywey's. It was originally owned by Tom Siwi at University of Illinois and started, I think, by Al Blatter and William Duckworth at University of Illinois in the late 60s. But I've been trying to collect a lot of these pieces that I was surprised are not available. Um, so I'm hoping I have Julia Perry on my radar and seeing who owns the the rights to those pieces or in particular the percussion harp piece. Um, But I would mention um, along this similar lines, Francisco Boas um, was a dancer, um, worked with John Cage and Lou Harrison in the 1930s on the the, um, West Coast and in New York City, and she has a percussion quartet called Changing Tensions um, that was I think premiered in 1939 on one of the Cage Percussion Players concerts. And um, I think it's a fabulous piece and it's something I would hope more people would perform. Um, And again, that's not to say that that's necessarily my top piece right now, but it's just something that came to mind.
0: Yeah, cool, cool. Sean, what's, what's on your mind?
4: Uh, for me, it's Stuart Saunders-Smith. Um, Stewart's music, for me, really changed my perspective on music in a lot of ways. And uh, Stuart's a great mentor of mine as well. But, you know, a few years ago, he moved from Baltimore to Vermont, where he retired. And I think his music has changed a lot since he's moved out there. He and Sylvia have a homestead. Um, I think he kind of perceives time differently out there, and his music has changed a lot as a result. Um he has a few pieces right now for percussion ensemble and additional instruments and i think they're really fabulous pieces it's afterlife mercy um and i believe he's working on another one as well a new one so for me those are the pieces that are uh at the top of my list right now i think they're really fantastic pieces
0: yeah awesome thanks how about you aaron
5: again this is just a hard question and i i want to uh we'll just hang on another hour and a half so I can properly answer right? <laughs> um, really, this is, I've had like more than a mild obsession with this work for a while now, but over the pandemic, I've been recording a lot of uh, Eva Maria Huben's music, um, particularly a set of pieces, uh, three pieces called Vinchpiels that are for various keyboard instruments. Um, and, she's like a member of the Vondelweiser Collective, so there's like lots of space, really delicate sounds, and uh, kind of without her permission, I started adding kind of static landscape video field recording elements behind, so that different environmental sounds are introduced, and I kind of like very nervously sent it to her, and I was like, if this isn't okay, tell me, and I'll like, I'll get rid of it, and it won't exist on the internet, and she was like so warm and caring and, you know, loved it and uh i think just like her personality she's just incredible and i think the going back to this idea of like something that's deeply personal and and approached with a lot of care i i, I see and feel that in her music so i've just kind of been doing the deep dive there
0: yeah awesome Leah, i hope that sean didn't steal your Stuart saunders smith <laughs> i know you've worked with him a ton
7: no, no, oh, that's I do do a ton of Stuart's music and I, I do love Stuart's music. I, and it's sort of, I think it's just always a part of my life. So, um, it's not necessarily the newest thing that's on my mind at the, at the moment. And I am working on a, a, a piece that Stuart wrote right now to record eventually, um, called Lazarus for vibraphone. Well, it was originally written by Stuart for piano and voice, and I played it for, for violin and I'm sorry, vibraphone and voice, um. On a tour in Europe many, many, many years ago, and then it's been since been recorded by a pianist um, singer, and I'm hoping to record it, the vibraphone singing version soon. Um, the The composer that I've been listening to a lot um, is Julia Wolfe, um, because it's certainly the voice connection. But the the one I wanted to mention today um, is uh, Viet Quang. I've been listening to a lot of his percussion music, and um, I'm particularly taken with this piece, Water, Wine, Brandy, Brine that Soul Percussion did um, with uh, percussion quartet and 15 crystal glasses that are tuned. It's just haunting. Um, and it's just so fascinating to watch. It's just it really engaging. And um, when one of my students first told me about Viet Quang, I, I was really excited. And I, I went and I started watching the video and. I got so into watching the the performance that i completely missed the first 15 minutes of one of my students lessons because i didn't even realize what time it was that's how engaging this piece was so i, I definitely recommend um to check out viet Quang and um i can type the spelling into the chat too because it's a little unusual spelling
0: awesome thanks and and jen what's on your radar other than lots of tiles
6: Right. Oh, I just want to say, Viet, he he. We went to high school together, uh, oh. so it's just like so amazing to see him doing so well. Uh, yes, it's, ah, so great. Um, two pieces on my mind. One is uh, Evgeny Jackson's solo, deliberate, afraid of nothing, which Colleen Bernstein, Bernstein premiered, maybe two months ago at the Mata Festival. It's just so elegant. It's just so good. And one one other piece that's on my mind right now, because hopefully we will mount it here in Oslo, is called 100 Symbols by Ryoji Ikeda, who is a Japanese visual artist and sound artist and composer. And the piece is for 100 Symbols, which are placed in a 10 by 10 grid. And then it's 10 performers who are performing on the symbols. And basically, he, he makes electronic music. So it's a kind of electronic acoustic noise music, acoustic electronic noise music. Um, yeah, and the interesting thing is that it's for custom made symbols. So they're actually making a new set in Turkey now to ship. Hopefully it can all happen. Um, but I really recommend checking out his work. He also has smaller scale pieces. They're also incredible. Wow, very cool. That sounds that sounds just fascinating. Um, and Joey,
0: I think you have you have one more.
3: I do because again, my attention span is so low. Um, someone I've been reading about a lot, and he's a composer that's talked about all the time, but I've never really listened to his music very much until very re- pretty recently is Christian Wolff. Um, just the amount of music he has um, and the way he allows the performer to interact with the composer and the audience and with each other I think is is quite beautiful and um I I guess I would just encourage folks to look more into his music and he has a a lot of stuff for percussion that I at least in my experience isn't really performed that much.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, for, for anybody who's uh, wrapping up the semester and thinking like, what's next for me? Here's a whole bunch of wonderful, beautiful, interesting suggestions from our panel here. Um, Lee, I wanna I wanna hear just one, one last time a little bit about New Music Research Presents.
7: Yes, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I just wanted to do one more um, plug for New Music Research Presents um, at PASIC 2021. There's just so much exciting music. Um, Bonnie Whiting and I have worked super hard on this event and we couldn't be more happy with um, the incredible collection of music that we have. So I mentioned some things already, Um, you know we've got um, Steve Schick who will be playing Roger Reynolds Here and There which is a brand new piece. Um, we've got Nikki Yoshi who's doing this incredible theatrical piece by Matt Curley called The Yellow Wallpaper Um, which is a complete theatrical piece with costuming and all sorts of incredible found object instruments that she plays um, while she narrates and speaks and things. It's really incredible. Um, We've got um, George Lewis's North Star Boogaloo being played by Brian Wasaki. We've got some incredible emerging performers. Um, Rose Circone will be playing an original a singer-songwriter tune called House, that's a really, really incredible piece. Um, We've got um, Rose Martin playing a piece by Stuart Saunders-Smith called Clay Singing. Um, And the list goes on and on and on. So I just wanted to put one more plug in for um, New Music Research Presents um, Music for Percussion and Voice uh, for PASIC 2021. I hope to see everybody there.
3: Um, And just a, a quick plug for Percussive Arts Society committees. Um, applications are open right now until I believe April thirtieth, so a week or so. And um, there's tons of different committees. Um, check out pas.org, and I think there's a, a get involved tab that you you click on, and then you can look at all the different committees. And I would encourage folks to apply to as many as they're interested in. Um, and the new music research committee is always looking for um, great people to to join us. So.
0: Cool. Thanks, Joey. And thanks, Lee. Um, I can't wait to, to experience all the New Music Research Presents concerts um, in November. Thank you all so very much for joining us. It's been a wonderful discussion. I appreciate so much all of your insights. I look forward to hopefully meeting you all in person in November, those of you that I haven't seen and seeing those who I have met. Um, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode.